did that. I don't like calling you David. It doesn't, it doesn't feel, right. feel right. It doesn't feel right. It, it doesn't. doesn't. Right. Well, but you, because you, you don't love being called David, right? I, I just don't feel like I am a David. I've, I've tried to pull it off a couple of times, but I, I, I just don't think I am one. David. You know, it, David. I just found out uh, like a, an old family friend of ours, a woman who uh, was tight with my mom and who is now living in the same sort of community as her, has a lifelong policy of no nicknames. Oh, wow. If your name is Melissa, you will be called Melissa, not Missy. If your name is James, you're James. You're not Jim. It's just, it's a family policy, and she's very strict about it. And I think that's the weirdest goddamn thing I've ever heard in my life. So she's been running around calling you David behind your back. I guess she has. I guess she has. Or maybe to my face or whatever, but I don't. I, yeah, I just never really thought about it. But that's, you have to be able to have a nickname, right? You must. Well, you know, this is a perfect segue because our guest today has a fantastic name. I'm very curious if it is a nickname or if it's not, if there is another nickname. Mm. But she is the founder of a nonprofit called Miri's List, which is an incredible organization that helps refugees from the Middle East and now Ukraine. She's also co-author of a children's book called Our World is a Family with my friend Jennifer Lee Jackson. And her name We'll find out if it's short for something or not is Miri Whitehill. Miri, hello. Hey. Well, if we're going to be using our full names, then not only should you call me Miriam, but I guess the organization would be Miriam's List. But I don't know if the URL is available for that, so we should just stick with Miri's List for now. Right. We need to be clear about branding today. We need to stick to Miri. We need SEO strategy front and center. I like Miri. Miriam's a great name, but Miri is I, I like it it's fun it's informal it's been my go by since elementary school it was a name given to me by my bestie naomi she's still somebody who's in my life and it's stuck and and sometimes there are nicknames that are oh just to shorten someone's name for convenience for the speaker but then there's also the nicknames that are terms of endearment that yeah. i think we should lean into yeah yeah. yeah, and I like that you've leaned all the way into it. And, I, and this was a nickname given to you, not that you, you know, put your foot down and decided out of nowhere. But was your family resistant? Well, s- certain members of my family have been calling me Miri for years and others call, still call me Miriam. And sometimes people call me Mira. And I've even been called Murray before. Hmm. And Murray. honestly, I don't mind. I'm just, you know, call me whatever you like. Just keep calling, keep writing those checks. I will mm-hmm. use your money to help refugees. And honestly, yeah. call me whatever you like. Fantastic. We'll answer to all of them. <laughs> so you're obviously a very busy woman. Can you walk us through, a, I'm sure there's no typical day, but what is the closest thing to a typical day in your life right now? Yeah, well, I have two young kids. They are six and nine. So my day will typically begin with all the things needed to keep them alive and uh, get them to school. Once I have that part of my day taken care of, I can get myself home, drink some coffee, and get to my list of tasks. I will typically have anywhere from three to five pieces of paper on my desk with lists of things that I need to do just to kind of get myself through the day or the week. I'll have one list that's long-term things, one list that's things that need to get done you know, right away, and um, I really rely on those to kind of keep myself, t- uh, you know, all these tasks top of mind. And I often have to shift quickly between different, you know, parts of my life. So, you know, I could just get a phone call from the nurse at my kid's school. And then suddenly I need to wrap up my day real quickly and go pick someone up. And, you know, then I'm making chicken soup. So <laughs> that's just part of the life. And my organization, Miri's List, we're working mostly with families. And a lot of the people who are in our program, they have little kids. And, um, you know, sometimes when I'm talking with families and there's a lot of background noise, I'll say, hey, forgive me. I have, you know, my kids are right here and they need me. Can you hang on a second? And, uh, you know, that's probably one of the most relatable problems on the planet. So I'm just leaning into it. I don't really have a separation between my role as a parent and the work that I do at Miri's List because it's very, very connected. Yeah. I love that Miri's List uh, requires a lot of actual Miri's Lists, physical lists on your- <laughs> There's a lot of lists. To, yeah, yes. keep it all running. 
Any current pop culture obsessions you can share? Anything that you're watching or reading or listening to that you can't get enough of? Oh, what am I currently watching or reading or listening to? Oh, on the reading front, I only read books that are absolute trash. So I am not going to share with you any. <laughs> I like. Oh, come on. I like Please, to read that's books what we need. that are like the talkies of reading. Mm-hmm. Page turners that will just take me through murder mysteries. That's. I just like to escape. Oftentimes, people will recommend these important, award-winning, substantial books. Often, they are about the refugee experience. I have a shelf full of them. I cannot. I just cannot. I need to watch Love is Blind. I need to read uh, Murder Mysteries, Faye Kellerman, you know, anything that's Dan Brown or less is what I go for. Because... I have so much heaviness and seriousness that I am required to just navigate through in my day-to-day life. And so media for me is truly an escape. And I really, really love that. And a lot of the music that I listen to, I'm just kind of discovering through Instagram and TikTok. Isn't that like amazing how suddenly like all these incredible artists are just finding listeners and, um, my son is obsessed with Sean Mendez, and I'm actually now getting on the Sean Mendez train myself. Sure. I'm right there with you. I love to play piano, so anything that I can play myself and sing along with, that's going to be my favorite obsession. Those oh, so Sean Mendez sing-alongs are happening in your house. Oh, yes. Very, very much. Very much so. Very talented and very pretty. <laughs> he really is. He's a very beautiful person. It's beautiful. Um, It's crazy how TikTok is like changing music. Uh, A friend of mine co-wrote a song with with an emo band called Pierce the Veil Mm. 10, 12 years ago. And it was released as a single and it did okay and whatever. But in like the last three months, there's been this like TikTok thing. Like, I don't know if there's a dance associated with it or whatever, Mm -hmm. but suddenly this song is like on the charts again. Oh my God, and I like love that. And like a whole new generation of kids know about it because there's like a TikTok thing to do or whatever. That's really cool. And their shows are selling out all of a sudden. It's uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. What does TikTok serve up to you? Like, what have you trained its algorithm to give you? Well, I'm just going to be real honest. I actually don't have my own TikTok account. I access TikTok through my Tortoise's TikTok account. So... Her name on... (laughs) We will need some more information here. (laughs) Bad News Torty. That is my tortoise. Her name is Betty Whitehill. And um, she has a TikTok account. And so she gets served a lot of content that is, you know, tortoise and wildlife related. Uh And a lot of food, just because that's what's there. And I don't actually have my own TikTok account, just because I'm I'm not at the point in my life where I'm willing to admit to being vested in TikTok yet. So I hack in through through Betty Whitehill's account. Okay. okay. <laughs> Interesting. Everybody give Betty Whitehill a follow if you're on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. She's Whitehill. bad news torty on TikTok. Okay. So does Betty have a like a play area in the in the yard or yeah she she lives outside. Um she's uh-huh. uh the chillest pet I've ever had. I've always been a dog person. Until my soul dog, Leroy, passed away in 2020 and just broke my heart. And I realized I will just never go through this again. The grief of just, you know, losing a pet who's really a family member. So then I thought, well, what if I get a pet that will never die? What if I get a pet that will outlive me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And now I have a sulcata tortoise. She's fantastic. She never wakes me up. She never makes a mess in the house. She lives full-time outside. She has her own uh, habitat. She has a house there. It has a little heater in the little house. She, she's a desert tortoise. She doesn't hibernate. And here's, here's something that I love about having a tortoise. Every day, she eats a salad that's the size of her shell. That's how you kind of measure out <laughs> the serving size of how wow. much your tortoise should eat. And that's why tortoises live over 100 years, because they eat that much kale every day. And that's pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, she's vegan. That's the secret. That's herbivore in tortoise or vegan in uh, how wow, we would describe we. it. 
Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Got to step up my kale intake. <laughs> totally. Have you thought about loving again when it comes to a dog? I know it's incredibly painful. We've both been through it. But have you given it any more thought? Have you healed enough? I maybe one day. I, maybe it's the kind of thing that when a relationship ends and it breaks your heart and you're like, oh, I'll never do that again. I'll never mm-hmm. make myself vulnerable to that level. And and then you just have to meet the right person to mm-hmm. take you there. To Maybe I just need to meet the right dog. Mm-hmm. But I I notice that I walk around the world and I see people with dogs and I'm like, I just don't even want to be involved. I'm just, wow. my heart, my heart has hardened because I'm just still sad every day. Oh, I miss yeah. him. It's been two years. And his name was Leroy. He was just the best. I had him for 14 amazing years. Yeah. You know, I, I, I need to get back to you on that. And I will definitely let you know if I find the next love of my life. Sure. Yeah, please do. I will. R.I.P. Leroy. Sounds like a very good boy. <laughs> he was excellent. There will never be another Leroy. I, I, right. I would say jump before you're ready. You just never know yeah. what might happen. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the worst. Thank you. And I will say, just to go back to the dating metaphor, sometimes the best way to get over a tough breakup is not to jump into another relationship, but to sleep with a lot of people. And I did find in, you know, part of our grieving process was kind of going on a lot of first dates with available Mm -hmm. dogs. We met Mm -hmm. a lot of dogs and we knew that most of them just weren't right. And we were just sort of, it was just a numbers game, you know? Just have to um, get out there and start swiping. Yeah. I didn't consider that. Maybe I should do some dog sitting and maybe like a foster thing. I just, I hadn't considered that. And I appreciate that. I like that approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Get back in the game. Yeah. Get back in the game. Maybe I should open a WAG account and start walking other people's dogs. And just make some of there that some of that side hustle. It sounds like you do you have plenty of extra time to add <laughs> more things to Miri's list. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, why not? Tell us the origin story of Miri's list. Yeah, well, Miri's list is an organization that began the way a lot of life's most wonderful things begin, which is spontaneously and without seeing it coming. Started about six years ago. At the time, I was on maternity leave from my job. I used to work in advertising. I was home with a newborn and a three-year-old. And, uh, you know, for for anybody that has ever, you know, <laughs> had little ones in the house, they can relate to this. I had my hands very full the day-to-day of just, you know, managing my kids and my household and my own sanity was, you know, I wasn't looking to start an organization or even get a, a new job. I also had every intention of going back to advertising after this period was, you know, I graduated from that season. And then out of the blue one day, a friend of mine, my neighbor, Suzanne, called me and said that she had just met a family who had moved to Los Angeles as refugees from Syria. And the reason why she called me is because they had a baby who was the same age as my youngest. And they needed some baby supplies. And specifically, they needed a baby bouncer chair, basically a place to put the baby down safely um, in the house. And she told me that this baby was five months old and he had been in their arms for five months. And, you know, that was just so, it really resonated with me. I was like, that is so relatable. And I, myself, you know, being, this was, I was on my second kid. And so, you know, I was very fortunate to have a lot of stuff. I had, you know, the hand-me-downs from my oldest and then gifts from friends. And, you know, I actually at that time had a safe place to put my baby down in every room of my house, even the bathroom. And it was such an easy yes, the thing that she asked me to help with. And so that is what led me to meeting this family in their home. And um, I brought a Fisher-Price jumperoo. And if you haven't seen one of those, uh, basically, I call it the Baby Operating Control Center. 
basically you stick the baby in the middle and it holds them there so they can be upright even if they're not old enough to stand yet. And they're surrounded 360 by buttons and lights and toys and they can really just, it's one of the first ways that a baby can entertain themselves. And then parents can do things like brush their teeth, wash dishes, you know, throw a load of laundry in. It's like so fantastic. And uh, so that's what I brought for this baby. And my friend came with me. She brought a box of diapers and wipes. And and then once I was there in their home, I could just, you know, notice that there was a lot of things missing in their apartment. You know, I didn't have hardly any context. You know, I didn't, I didn't recognize during that first visit that what I was seeing was actually representative of what most resettling refugee families go through when they come to the United States, which is starting out in homes that are not set up to be safe, functional, or comfortable for the family. However, I was quite, you know, moved by wanting to help this one family get their one apartment set up. I remember using their bathroom, their house, and washing my hands and turning and to dry my hands and realizing there was no towels on the towel rack. You know, I poked my head in the shower and I noticed they didn't have toiletries and and shampoo. I also want to mention that in addition to this baby, they also had two five-year-olds that were about to start school for the first time. Um, So there were five people living in this small apartment that was very sparsely furnished. And um, it really felt vacant. And they had been living there for three weeks. And so, you know, it put me in this kind of position of a lot of question marks and wanting to help them. You know, I kind of assumed that they had fallen through the cracks. Surely there's a system that is set up to make sure that refugee babies have mattresses in their cribs in the United States, right? You know, this must be a fluke. That is when I called my friend, Luai, who um, he speaks Arabic and English and Hebrew and a few other languages. And he was our interpreter because, you know, I really wanted to talk to them to find out, you know, what are the things that they really need? And he convinced them to be vulnerable with me and to walk around the house with me and him on my phone. And I had a notebook like this in my bag and we just kind of went room by room, you know, shelf by shelf. And we made a list of the things that they needed to get their home set up. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that was the first Mary's List family. I drove home that day from their house with this list. It was 42 items, the first list for the first family. And then I had this kind of conversation with myself in my mind. And and thanks to Los Angeles traffic, I had a long time to really mull this over But half of my brain was like, oh, go pull into Target or Walmart on the way home and go buy everything. Put it on a credit card. You'll figure it out later. And then the other half of my brain was like, hey, hold up. You have two kids. You're on a single income. Like, you should not do that. That is not responsible. And so by the time I pulled into my driveway, I had made this plan that I would open up Facebook, start a new post, type the list into a post and ask my friends to help me to get the things that this family needed. And that is how Mary's List began. And it took less than two weeks for every single thing on that list to be donated by my neighbors, people that I had you know, worked with at previous jobs, my friends, their friends. It was like at all hours of the night, people were just dropping stuff off at my house. And um, I would just bring it over to the family and we would spend more time together and they would serve me these beautiful, delicious Syrian meals that was just kind of like, you know, part of that was like some of the best part for me was just like getting to know them and learn about Syrian culture through food. And, you know, that that was six years ago. And I'm happy to report that this week we enrolled our 1055th family in the Miri's List program. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure it's been an unbelievably long and complicated journey between, you know, then and now. But once you realized, uh, you know, after helping that first family that you wanted to do this, you know, in a more 
serious, organized way. What What is the first sort of like practical, logistical, boots on the ground thing that one does to start a nonprofit? Well, once that family's list was fulfilled, I was really curious to know, you know, are there other families that were in this position? Because really what you need to start a nonprofit is you need to identify a need. And then on the other side of it, you need to identify an interest. And what that means is people who care enough about the need to have an interest to help solve it. And, you know, that story of meeting the first family, that was the discovery of a need of one family or so I thought. And then my everyone who I knew coming to my house with supplies for them over the course of the next two weeks, that was my beginning of an understanding of what the interest was to solve this problem. And then my next step was this research and learning. Just, you know, I was really curious. Is this family, you know, like I assumed, did they fall through the cracks? Or is this representative of what families go through when they come to the U.S. as refugees? And um, I started by Googling Syrian refugee resettlement Los Angeles. And um, I was sitting behind my house. My baby was napping. I was smoking a cigarette because I used to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't anymore. And I started calling around to the organizations in Los Angeles working with refugees. And that's how I found myself on the phone with a caseworker who had been working with refugees for more than two decades in LA. And she was telling me just a little bit about what her job was like. And she told me something that really kind of locked in what the need was. And she said, at this time, 10 years ago, I would be responsible for anywhere from 20 to 30 people at any given time. That was the size of my caseload. Today, so the day of that phone call in 2016, she said, I'm responsible for more than 200 people. That insight helped me to wrap my head around why there was this family who had a crib with no mattress and why they didn't have towels and why they needed garbage bags and, you know, these basics. And I understood, okay, the caseworkers that are working with the government to do the work of resettling refugees, they each caseworker is responsible for more than 200 people. Like, well, that's obvious why people are falling through the cracks. So then this is kind of when I like tapped into my old like days in advertising and marketing. And I, I kind of recognized that I had to kind of fake it a little bit because I just had so much empathy for this person. She was so hardworking and I was just like, I have to help her. And so what I did was I made it seem like the thing that I did once was something that I did all the time. And I told her that me and my neighbors created a social media platform where people could use Facebook to help refugees get their home set up. <laughs> and not a lie, not <laughs> not really. I mean, it, exa- know, exactly. Technically true. And I was uh, I'm very grateful and I was very surprised with her response, but she said, "Thank you so much. We've really needed help like this for a long time." And she actually introduced me to the next the next family. And uh, the second family was a mom and dad Palestinian refugees. They had three kids, a newborn, a two-year-old, and a six-year-old. And um, I remember that the thing that they needed most was a triple stroller so they could walk the first grader to school almost a mile from their house, and they didn't have a car, so they could get him to school with the baby and the toddler in tow. And I was just like, of course. And, you know, we were able to find somebody to buy them a a brand new triple stroller from Target within a day. And, uh, you know, we've now been able to help over 5,000 people, which is, you know, way beyond what I ever expected. And, uh, you know, Miri's List became an organization in probably 100,000 different tiny steps. It wasn't a decision that I made and then went towards. It was learning more and more about really kind of specific 
and solvable problems that were faced by people who didn't have the, the wherewithal or the social network to be able to solve these problems themselves. But I did, and my friends did. And so we kind of tapped into that network of helpful and loving moms and, and parents. And, and actually, that triple stroller was purchased by someone I knew who doesn't have kids. And so it wasn't, it wasn't just me and my other parent friends. It was really a total cross-section of, you know, recognizing that there was interest to help refugees get set up in their new homes. And it was definitely something that went beyond just me and my friends. How does it work now if somebody is listening and is like, I want to I want to help. Put me in. Yeah. What, do they, what do they do? Well, I'm very happy. To... <laughs> what do I do, I guess, is the way that I should phrase that. That's a great question. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to report that I am no longer personally driving things over to people's homes. You know, obviously, for the organization to grow from one family to over a thousand families, we had to have found scale. And today, we use the magic of the internet. So the thing that I told that person that was you know, a soft lie <laughs> and on that in that first, you know, early weeks. Um, it is now very much true. We have an online platform, um, mureslist.org. You can click see the list. It's the first link that you see on the page. And we have online shoppable wish lists. We create each wish list with each family. And those lists are online through Target. And anybody that has access to the internet from anywhere in the world is able to send a welcome gift directly to the door of a resettling family. Um, we include photos and information about each family. The gifts go directly to them. They don't come to Miri's list. We're not the middleman. And then also you can write a gift message, which is just really, really appreciated by the people who receive these gifts. And we have been able to uh, enable over a million dollars worth of housewarming gifts for resettling families. Um, everything from like entire rooms full of furniture and sofa sets to, you know, a pair of socks for a baby and kind of the way that you would shop a wedding registry or, you know, any kind of online registry, you can find something that resonates with you. And it makes such a huge difference. It's, and it's, I also want to say that it's really not only about stuff, because for families who have come to the United States as refugees from countries like Afghanistan or Iran, Syria, Iraq, Ukraine, Moldova, these are some of the countries where our families come from, you know, often they are coming from places where they had huge family and social networks. You know, maybe they lived in, had the same house as multiple generations of their family and certainly in the same neighborhood. And so, you know, for example, for there to be a mom who is expecting who in Afghanistan, she would have had a big baby shower with her sisters and her cousins and her friends where they would bring all of these gifts. And then to be in a situation where not only does she, you know, far away from those people, but she doesn't have money to be able to go out and purchase those things for herself. You know, when she opens the door and in front of her is a pile of boxes and each box contains an important thing that she really needed that she was brave enough to share with a member of our staff was something that was would be on her wish list. And then in addition, inside each box is a note from an American person saying, welcome to America. Here's the, you know, first aid kit that you needed the baby thermometer, here's a box of diapers. You know, these gestures, they actually create room for healing. It, it can be transformative for somebody who has really had to make themselves invisible just to survive. And I think that we can all relate to that, regardless of if you have ever, you know, had to flee violence and persecution or leave your country you know, the idea that you have to be quiet and take what you're given and hope for the best. This is something that we can all relate to. It's a human experience. I have to ask you about the midterms because we're recording this on October 26th, so they are here. And obviously you're not, you know, uh, Miri's List is not a political organization per se, but what everything we're talking about is inherently so political, 
both major political parties, of course, have uh, less than perfect records uh, on these issues. I think it's safe to say one is exceptionally more cruel than the other. But do you try to just sort of stay in your lane or how much of your, your work spills over into, I don't know, rage against the machine? Such a good question. Um, well, first of all, I just want to share that all refugees who come to the United States do so with the permission of the U.S. government. This is a program that is overseen by the State Department. And so, first of all, there is no such thing as an illegal refugee in the United States of America. And that has been true for the entire history of the refugee program that began after World War II, when boats full of mostly Jewish refugees were fleeing Nazis. And at that time, we did not have a program for refugee resettlement in the U.S. Some of those boats were sent back, and some of those people ended up being murdered by the Nazis. And so this was the context under which the modern-day refugee resettlement program was developed in the United States. And it has pretty much stayed the same. The way that it works is the State Department licenses nine resettlement agencies to do the work of helping refugees after they arrive for the first 90 days. I think it's important to note that seven of those nine agencies are faith-based organizations. Miri's List is not a licensed resettlement agency. We do not work with the U.S. government. We don't take money from the U.S. government. We're also not a religious organization. We're a community-based organization. And what we do is we represent the neighbors. So while each family is going to get a caseworker that's assigned by their resettlement agency who will be with them for those first 90 days in whatever capacity they're able, we will stick with the family for the first 12 months. And so we're able to see them through because it takes a lot longer than 90 days to get used to living in a new place. When Mary's List began in 2016, he who will not be named was running for president. And at that time, in July of 2016, we all still kind of believed that it was a joke. And then in January of 2017, shortly after the inauguration of, of that president, the first refugee ban was put into place. And I actually remember I was working with some new arrival families who arrived the day before the first refugee ban. I was at a motel in Glendale. And I asked, I was like, have you been listening to the news? Do you know what happened while you were in flight to come here? And they were, they were you know, jet lagged and they were like, no, what's, what's going on? I'm like, you were on the last flight before the refugee program was shut down. And there were multiple iterations of that. And luckily, they didn't stick. However, for four years, the refugee program was downsized. And another really important thing to note about the way refugee resettlement works through the government in the United States is that it is funded in the same way that public schools are funded. So based on attendance. And so if a student doesn't come to school, the school isn't going to get funding for that student for that day. That's the same way it works for resettlement agencies. They get their funding based on how many people come. And so perhaps you've heard of the refugee cap or that number that's set by the president of how many refugees can come to the United States. So the previous administration lowered that cap every single quarter of their term. They decreased the number of refugees that could come to the United States. And so essentially what that did was it took a wrecking ball to the funding to the federal refugee program. Now, when Biden took office, the, one of the first things he did was he increased the refugee cap back to the Obama numbers. It was actually, he actually increased it to higher than that. However, those folks who began arriving right away, mostly from Afghanistan and Syria, they were coming to the United States in an environment that had the least number of federal resources available for refugees because of the four years of downsizing. Now, hundreds of licensed resettlement agencies had closed their doors over the course of those four years. And that, they are still rebuilding. It does not, you cannot rebuild a company with, you know, a snap or a switch of a light switch. These are, you know, the buildings were leased to other companies. The, the staff was let go. It takes time. And so 
you know, we have been in a situation of needing to show up quickly to address urgent needs for, for years now. And it's not only, you know, because of the Afghan evacuation or the war in Ukraine. This is um, something that it, it sometimes it feels like we are just moving from crisis to crisis without even hardly having a chance to like put our head up for some oxygen. And it's hard. And also it's very, very much needed. We have a limited capacity and, you know, the goal would be to increase our capacity over time. And then the last thing I want to say, and this is kind of related to there's no such thing as an illegal refugee in the U.S. All refugees who come to the United States have a path to citizenship. And within a few years, they get green cards and they can register to vote when they become citizens. And so if we're going to be talking about resettling refugees in the United States, it's actually more accurate, instead of referring them to them as refugees, it's more accurate to refer to them as new American families, because that really is what they are. And, and what we want is that as soon as they do get their citizenship, that they have the information that they need to register to vote right away. And we're not a political organization by any means, but we want to make sure that our families have access to the rights that all American families have, and that includes voting. Mary, why why Mary for this job? What is it about you or about your your own personal story that made this the right path for you? Well, I didn't go to school for this. I have never personally experienced having to move to a new country, fleeing violence. When I met that first family, I was at a time in my life of my own personal struggle. I was at the end of a marriage and I didn't know it. I was spending a lot of my time and energy to fix something that was truly unfixable, which, you know, I can go back and see that. But at the time, you know, there's this idea that, you know, if there's a problematic mechanism, if you change one part, you could change the whole thing. And very, very well-intending therapists, couples therapists, my own personal therapist and friends, you know, gave me a lot of advice on how I could be a better wife fix myself, change myself so I could finally be the kind of person that would be worthy of love in my relationship. And that exhausted me. I also felt like I had to separate myself from my own needs in so many different ways. And I remember at that time, like when I was meeting that first family, I remember sitting on the floor with them. We were having a picnic Mom came out with this tray of tea and bananas and cereal just because that's what they had in the house. And we were all kind of sitting there on the floor and we didn't share a language. So we were mostly just kind of looking at each other and trying to, you know, it was awkward, but full of, you know, it was an interesting adventure for me. And I remember noticing the way that this mom and dad were looking at each other and looking at their kids. And I just could see this love that was there. And particularly the way that the dad was looking at the children and, and taking care of them and looking after them. And I, you know, this is, this is kind of, it's kind of weird to say it like this, but I, I felt envious. I was like, we're sitting on the floor in this empty room but their house is full of love. Look how much love there is within this family. And actually that is what led me to needing to excuse myself to go to the bathroom. I didn't have to go. I just needed to have a moment to myself because I was like, who am I to be here with these folks who are struggling and to be envious of them in my position? I get to drive home like in my car and go to my house full of stuff. But it really kind of put this in my face that I was spinning my wheels. 
And over the next days and weeks, you know, continuing to go back to their house and just kind of put my energy into helping them, I kind of gave myself permission to stop putting my energy towards something that couldn't be solved and put my energy towards other things that I could actually make an impact. And it totally changed my life. It, it gave me, you know, it, and it took a long time because only a couple of years later is when I finally got out of that marriage, which was very toxic. And shortly after that, I came out, you know, I, I got to announce at the Shabbat dinner table to my parents, Hey, I'm gay. I'm in a great relationship with someone who I'm absolutely in love with. And, you know, there's so much bravery in migrating. I have witnessed so many acts of bravery and, and that actually has motivated me to be brave in my life. And I don't know what my life would look like today if I had not had the privilege of being able to to learn about these incredible families and get to know them and get to meet them and to have so many role models of what it looks like to be a heroic parent. And and I have applied some of those learnings to my own life. And I, I don't know if that answers your question completely, but I'm working really hard to kind of catch up on some of the the parts of my job that I didn't go to school for, because all that can be learned. You know, you can go to a nonprofit management school online or do a, I'm doing a fellowship to kind of learn those more practical skills. But ultimately, you know, just getting to know people and learn from them, it's, it's you know, that's what keeps me motivated every day. So the book is called Our World as a Family. Actually, uh, tell me first, are, are there any children's books that really spoke to you when you were a kid? My favorite books as a kid, I loved the Berenstein Bears. I just loved those stories so much. I didn't actually own very many of them, but my best friend across the street, she owned all of them. And so I would regularly go to her house and just tear through those again and again and again. And I remember as a kid, you know, when we would talk about with friends or teachers, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always wanted to be a writer. That was just something that I I felt from a very, very young age. And I used to write a, a lot of short stories. And, um, and then, you know, I went to school for advertising, did that for 10 years. And, and I never really felt like I knew what to write about. And then, the experience of starting Miri's List and beginning to meet a lot of families who have gone through these really transformational experiences and doing that with my kids with me. You know, what would happen is that we would come home and my kids would ask me questions like, how come those, the rooms, those kids' bedrooms don't have beds in them? You know, why does their apartment look different from ours? And I found myself in this situation where I had to kind of develop a script that I could share with my kids about what's the situation for their new friends in a way that was age appropriate and it wouldn't necessarily scare them or make them worry. And, you know, that was a trial and error process. And then eventually I came up with some language that I realized was really resonating with them. And also, you know, all of my friends who were getting involved in the many volunteers, they would come with their kids as well. And so we we began kind of developing these words that we would use to describe, you know, you know, who are we helping today? Why do these kids need our help? Why do we need to sort these clothes by by size or these toys by by the age? And then when my friend Jennifer called me out of the blue one day and she had already written an amazing book, children's book. And she posed this question, hey, would you ever want to write a book about welcoming refugees for kids? You know, I was like, can we meet at a diner? I think I already know the words. And that's what we did. We met at a diner and I just kind of told her, I just told her the thing that I had been telling my kids. And, and then she, in all of her like brilliance of 
you know, book writing, she was able to take all of this random words and put it into the format of a children's book because there's like a certain number of pages. There's a way that books have to be structured and, um, and then ultimately turning it into a manuscript. And now it came out in March, 22. It came out this <laughs> like, and it's in the world now. I have, I have it right here and I'd love to re- read a passage from it. Oh, if it's okay. please. Yes. Would that be all right? Okay. Um, so Our World is a Family is a book for tiny welcomers, and um, it's available everywhere that books are sold. We recommend you find it at your local indie bookstore, but you can get it really anywhere. And, uh, and here it is. Our great blue planet is bigger than you can even imagine. Wherever we find land and plants, we find people and animals living and growing and making a home. There are more types of people than you ever thought possible. They live in cold places, hot places, big cities, and small towns. All around the world, people speak different languages. Ni hao, hello, hola, ciao, salam, shalom, bonjour, konnichiwa, hello, jambo. No matter what language they speak, people everywhere want to feel safe and loved and important. But there are places in the world where it stops being safe for people to live. Sometimes it becomes so unsafe that children can't go to school and parents can't go to work and no one can play outside. When that happens, people might need to leave home and move to a new part of the world. They might move by foot, by bus, or by plane. They might travel a very long way to find a place where it is safe and quiet. When they finally arrive, They might miss their old home. Maybe they had to leave behind special things and special people. Maybe their new home doesn't feel like home at all. When we see someone new in our neighborhood, how can we help them feel safe and loved and important? How can we tell them you're not alone? And I don't want to spoil the rest, but the rest of the book goes into practical ways that people of all ages can make a really transformative impact to welcome people who are new in the classroom, at the playground, and in the community. Oh, it's so good. So beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for asking. Last question before we let you go, because we're recording this a few days before Halloween. Very important. What are your kids' Halloween costumes? Is there a family (laughs) costume? What's the plan? That is such an important question. So my youngest will be Teen Wolf this year, and um, he has been wearing that costume four days a week uh, for the entire (laughs) month of October. (laughs) And we're talking Michael J. Fox, to be clear. Yeah, Yeah, not like sexy MTV Teen Wolf. No, no. Traditional. Okay. It is a flannel and gloves with a lot of hair on them and a very scary mask that is covered in hair and there's teeth. And he absolutely loves it. He would sleep in it if I would allow him to. And my oldest is Bloody Skeleton Guy. I don't know if he has a specific name, but this is the first year that my kids are going as scary things. They've always been like Garfield and Pokemon characters and more like fun. But this year they both leaned hard into gore. And um, I'm trying to nurture that as much as possible because, you know, that's, yeah, do it. Get in Do there. It. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Do you have a costume? I don't have a costume yet, but I will probably throw one together. What I'm hoping to do is to find leggings with, bo- I want to be bones, you know, skeleton, full body skeleton. But I'm, so sure. I'm looking for those, you know, the leggings with the bones on them. And, you know, I, I refuse to pay full price for anything. So I was hoping that I could find it in my local buy nothing group. But uh, fingers crossed. Yeah. You could be Skeleton or you could be Phoebe Bridgers. That's she dresses like those are the two options. That's it. Yeah. It's out there. It's out there. It's out. You've put it into the universe. It will make its way back to you. Oh, I really hope so. And actually, you know, I just I just want to mention that like, you know, it's been it's been a long six years. And uh, we have come a long way um, from meeting one family to now having a 
quite a big network of families that are actually living in 24 states across the United States. We also have a staff of 19 people, and there are hundreds of volunteers who are involved with Mary's List to keep the machine moving every day. And all of this is possible because of the many, many helpers that have heard about us, whether it's on a podcast like this or in a on social media through a friend from a family member, and that they have felt like, okay, this is something I want to get involved with. And so if somebody's listening and they're feeling that way, I just want to encourage that um, we really need more helpers because the reality is the need for community-based programming for refugees, it is going up. It is only increasing. And we are only able to increase our capacity as we have more helpers, more people involved. And so if you want to shop the wish list, if you want to make a donation, if you want to sign up to volunteer through our website, you can even write a welcome letter to a family. We have a guide to do that. There's so many ways to get involved um, at, in a lot of different ways. So I just want to encourage as many people who would like to uh, to do so. And it's M-I-R-Y-S list.org. That's it. If you want to learn more and get involved. And the book is Our World is a Family, uh, which is, I, I think, the going to be the ho- the homophilia holiday gift of the year. Uh, uh, I hope so. Anybody who's got a kid in your life or an adult in yeah. your life, yeah. I think it belongs under the tree. And look at this oh. sweet gay family on the back. You see? Yay. See look at that? In the back? Yeah. Yeah. We just, Aww. we wanted, we worked with an incredible illustrator, Nomar Perez, who made the book as representative as possible. And I mean, obviously me and Jennifer wanted our families to be, you know, represented in there. And then also all of the wonderful people who are in the Mirazless community, they're going to be able to see images in here that resonate with them and just look a little bit like them. Mirazlist.org. We love it. Miri Whitehill, thank you so much for being here. And tell Jennifer Jackson that give her our love and uh, thank you to her for bringing you our way. Thank you so much for having me. Such an honor to be here. Homophilia is a World of Wonder production, produced and edited by Kate Moldenhauer. Special thanks to Randy Barbato, Fenton Bailey, Stephen Sims, Edward Bochniak, and the whole team at World of Wonder. We love you. And theme music by my Ben Wise. Yes, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HomophiliaPod. You can give us a five-star review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Mm. Thank you for listening. We love you. 